invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19 in your Bibles with me. Revelation chapter 19. Which would give you more excitement? A letter or an invitation in the mail to a wedding or a summons to court? One is a time of joy and celebration, and the other is a time of judgment and suffering. In chapter 19 of Revelation, we will have both of these perspectives with the end times. There will be a wedding in the first part of the chapter, which we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 10. But then there will be a summons to court, summons to judgment in verses 11 through 21. So let me begin reading in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This morning, we will see that we must worship God because the bride has made herself ready for her marriage to the Lamb. We must worship God. And and the reason I say that we must worship God is because you notice in the first six verses several times the word hallelujah, praise be to God. And, uh, And so the response of those who recognize this great event, this great marriage event, should be one of worship. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. We see that we must worship God for His works, His rule, and His judgment. Worship God for His works, His rule, and His judgment. Notice how the passage begins in verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice. The things that he is referring to are from chapters 17 and 18 that we looked at the last two weeks. The destruction of of Babylon, this city that epitomizes itself of the evil that is in the world. So after the destruction of Babylon, John is able to see this next event chronologically in the end times. This precedes the, the, um, 
the final events, uh, it, it precedes the Battle of Armageddon, which we will see conclude chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That's why I said the summons to court. It is all the wicked of the earth will be, will be judged at that time. And, um, and so in between the destruction of Babylon and the final battle of Armageddon on the earth, there's going to be this marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be this wedding and then a, a reception to follow. Notice the chorus of worship to God here. First, in verse 1 at the end, it says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. First, there's a shout of worship following this destruction of Babylon. Now, it's not clear who these voices are that are, that are shouting. It says something like a great voice. It could be angels, but it probably is more likely the tribulation saints, the tribulation martyrs that are there in heaven. This is where this event takes place, by the way. All of chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 are events that take place in heaven. So it's probably more likely the tribulation saints that have died, that have been killed for their faith. And the reason I say that is because the word multitude there in verse 19 is used only one other time in Revelation, and it's used in chapter 7, verse 9. And there it refers to those who are clothed in white and they have come out of the great tribulation. So believers are often in the Scriptures, even in Revelation, talked about they're talked about as being clothed in white, in white linen, as we'll see with Christ's bride, the church. But specifically in chapter 7, verse 9, it's talking about the tribulation saints, those who have come out of the tribulation they are clothed in white. And so this multitude is likely referring to the tribulation saints. And their perspe- from their perspective, having seen the world system destroyed, their response is one of worship. Hallelujah. Salvation and power and glory belong to our God. But they're not the only ones who worship God. Look at verse 4. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne. Twenty-four elders we saw in chapter 4 and uh, chapter 5. And these are referring to probably representatives of the church, I said then. And so this is probably not just the twenty-four elders, these representatives, but all the people who they represent as well. Um, So we could say something like... uh, you know, the United States is thankful for their relationship with Canada or something like that. And, and when we say the United States, we're not just talking about just the leadership of the United States. We're talking about the entire country is thankful for this relationship. And so I think it's referring to more probably than the 24 elders. It's probably referring to the church as well that is in heaven, has already been raptured up to heaven and is awaiting this marriage to uh, her groom, Jesus Christ. But also the four living creatures, and those represent the angels. They are four angels. They are very unique in their responsibility. They stay near the throne and they do the bidding of God there from the throne, but they probably represent all the angels. So it seems as if not just the tribulation saints are worshiping verses 1 through 3, but also the church and the angels are also worshiping God when they see that the destruction of Babylon has been completed. And uh, notice the command there in verse 5 to worship. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants. Now, 
there's a question as to who these bond servants are. Christians are called bond servants in Paul's writings. But if you uh, notice in chapter 19, verse 10, the angel called himself a fellow servant, or we could say a fellow bond servant of yours. And so what I think is that the command here is in verse 6 is that all of creation, all of, of you who are in heaven, all created beings in heaven, should, should worship God. Give praise to God, verse 5 says. In other words, sing hallelujah to God. Now, what I, what, I want to, uh, what I want to show you is that the content of their worship is one specific thing, and that is praise of God. Right there in verse 5, it says, Give praise to our God. Then go back up to verse 1 at the end of the verse. It says, Hallelujah. And then verse 3, and a second time they said, Hallelujah. And then verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. Now, we don't use that word a whole lot. Sometimes we use it as an expression of joy, but sometimes we don't know what it means when we say it. So, hallelujah is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's, it's used in the Psalms, and you probably recognize that word from there, uh, particularly the, the uh, Messianic Psalms uh, use that word often. And hallelujah is just a, uh, a Hebrew word that means praise God. Hallel is Yahweh, or, or hallel is praise, and Yahweh is God. So praise God. Hallelujah. Yahweh. Hallelujah. And um, so what the, what the angels, what the believers, what all of the created beings in heaven are supposed to do is praise God. Sing praise to God. And that's why we try to fill up uh, much of our singing with praise to God. The church is not about us. The church is about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice the reason for their worship at the end of verse 1. It says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. One reason they praise God is because He has saved His people from their enemies. He has saved His people from their enemies, but that's not the only reason. He also has avenged the saints' blood. Those who have been killed, their blood has been shed as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. God has avenged that blood. Notice what it is not saying in verse 2. Let's read at the end of verse 1 first. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God in spite of His judgments, or in spite of the fact that His judgments are true and righteous. No, it says because of His judgments. Because His judgments are true and righteous, we give praise to God. We Glorify God. It's not that God is pretty good most of the time, and then there's that other thing where He has to judge people. And we, we recognize that's just something that He has to do. We don't praise Him for that. We're not happy that He judges. No, they actually worship God because of His judgments, because they are right and just. Now, it may not be pretty for us to witness those judgments, particularly... Um, if we're living on the earth, or those who will be living on the earth during this time. But, but what the text is telling us here is that we should praise God because of His judgments. Because He is great and powerful in His judgments. And specifically, the judgment that was just talked about, chapter 17 and 18, the judgment of the great harlot, because 
she had tried to pull as many people away from following God and, and entrap them in sin. And she was very successful in, 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 in drawing many people to herself. But finally, the judgment has come. The world system has been destroyed. The world still exists. That is the earth. But the system has been destroyed because of her leader. Because her leader has been destroyed. And so in that sense, the, the blood of the saints, the blood of the tribulation saints, has been avenged. And that's what it says there at the end of verse 2. Let me begin at the uh, start of verse 2. Because His judgments are true and righteous, for He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, both physical and spiritual, I believe. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. The blood that they shed as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ has been avenged by God. And notice verse 3 that that judgment is permanent. That judgment of Babylon. And the second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Some take this phrase, her smoke rising, as that there's going to be a perpetual burning like there was at Gehenna during Jesus' day. There was a big trash heap where they would throw all their trash in. There was just a perpetual burning and of this material and some people think that throughout all of the kingdom, the, the time when Jesus reigns on the earth for 1,000 years, that there will be this perpetual burning of Babylon as a reminder of God's punishment of their sin. But notice what the text says there in verse, uh, verse 3. Her smoke rises up how long? Forever and ever. Okay, so this is not just a smoldering for 1,000 years. This is a forever type of permanent type of event that's going to take place. And so that means that it's referring to more than just uh, for a period of time, she's go- there's going to be a reminder here, but, but that Babylon will be eternally destroyed in something that does burn forever and ever, and that is in hell. And so that will be a reminder. Um, that should be something for which we praise God, that He is going to destroy evil. He's going to destroy those who oppose Him. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. It's, it should remind us of the picture that we had in our minds from last week when we saw that Babylon was taken and the angel picked her up and threw her into the, the water like a millstone. Remember, and we said the millstone would, would be this heavy, several-ton uh, uh a piece of equipment really that was used to grind grain and it would be thrown into the water and it would reach the bottom of the sea never to return. And that's the permanence of Babylon and her evil. And so we should praise God for the permanence of His destruction of evil. We should praise Him for His salvation of His people, verse 1. We should praise Him for judging His enemies, verse 2. We should praise Him for the permanence of that judgment, verse 3. And then verse 6, we see that we should praise God because He reigns. At the end of the verse, it says, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. That God reigns. He is the King. That's the idea there. That God is the King of all kings. We're going to see that that's going to be very clear when Jesus comes to the earth. It may not seem right now in your life as if God is king. That is, it seems as if Satan is winning. As if Satan is the king of this earth. And there is a sense in which that is true. But but ultimately, even Satan is underneath God's authority. 
Even Satan cannot do anything apart from God's purposes, God's plan. And it will be clear one day when, when Satan's world system is destroyed here at Babylon and later we're going to see that he's going to be captured and, and incarcerated for a thousand years during the kingdom. That'll, we'll see that in chapter 20. But it will be clear at that time who is the king. There will be no question. Hmm, I wonder who's reigning right now. That may be the case in this earth. And, and there may be people who try to argue with you that God is not in control. God is not the king. But, but what these people are praising God for is that He reigns. It's clear that He reigns. When Jesus comes to the earth, it will be even more clear. The, the next thing we need, to, we need to praise God for, sing hallelujah to Him for, is because He's prepared Christ's bride for the marriage. And that's in verses 7 through 9. God has prepared Christ's bride for the marriage or the wedding. The preparation of the bride is found in verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad. That's the same idea. Give praise or sing hallelujah. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The identity of the, of the bride... Uh, should be pretty obvious to you if you've been uh, if you studied the scripture for any uh, lengthy period of time. But notice what we should recognize in this text is that the bride is distinct from the guests. Okay, so look at verse seven again at the end. It says the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And then notice verse nine. Then He said to me, "Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb." So in the most technical sense, the the um, the bride would not be invited to the wedding. She would be doing the inviting, right? So the, the people who are the guests, verse 9, are different from the bride. And so now we need to try to understand who these two groups of people are. Who is the bride? Who are the guests? Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5 because this is where this language comes from. Ephesians chapter Revelation was the last book written, not just the last book in your Bible, but it was actually the last book written chronologically in history. is written around 95, AD 95. So he would have had access to Paul's writings and would have understood these things. So Ephesians chapter 5 shows us where this language comes from, the bride of Christ. Who is this bride of Christ? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, you don't have to turn there. Paul says, uh, uh, I betrothed you, or he's speaking on behalf of God, I betrothed you to one husband so, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He's talking to the church there and he's saying, I, God, I'm going to present you to Jesus Christ as a pure virgin. And here in verses 25-27, we tend to focus primarily on the husband and how he is responsible to love his wife, but really that picture is only helping us to see the greater love between Christ and His church. Look again at verse 
25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Then it talks about what His purposes are for the church so that He might sanctify her, so that He may, verse 27, present to Himself a church in all of her glory, pure, unspotted, without wrinkle. And the reason that we know when we look at this analogy here, that is the marriage relationship and the relationship between Christ and His church, the reason that we know that the greater picture is not the husband and the wife, but is Christ and the church. Look down to verse 32, and that's how we know. Paul says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This marriage paradigm that we see in this lifetime and many experience in this lifetime is really only something that is pointing to something greater, and that is the relationship of Christ to the church. This divine marriage relationship where Christ makes His bride, the church, ready and presents that bride to Himself unspotted. Beautiful for that day, that wedding day. So, who are the guests? Turn back to Revelation chapter 19. If, if the bride is the church, then who are these who will be invited to the marriage supper? Um, the dinner guests appear to be the tribulation saints. And the reason that I say that is because of Matthew chapter 25. If you remember from Matthew 25, there is a parable of the ten virgins. And they're told to get their lamps trimmed and, and ready for when the bridegroom comes so that they can enjoy this marriage supper, this marriage reception, we would call it. And only five of them do it. And so the other five are excluded from the marriage festivities, the wedding uh, reception festivities. So the, the, the ones who are having their, who, who are supposed to be ready at the time when Christ finally comes, that is, when He literally comes back to the earth with His bride, that is the tribulation saints. They are the, what in that passage is called the virgins. They're supposed to be the ones that are ready to enjoy this marriage supper, this, this reception. And uh, John the Baptist had called himself, uh, he lumps himself into a group with Old Testament saints in John chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. And he says that, that uh, we are the friends of the bridegroom. So, I'm not a part of the bridegroom. I'm part of the Old Testament saints. I'm not going to get married to Christ in that sense, but I'm going to be a friend of the bridegroom, maybe uh, as a part of the wedding party. And that would be the Old Testament saints. So it seems like all believers of all time will be a part of this ceremony. The church will be the bride. The Old Testament saints will be friends of the bridegroom. And then the, uh, the, the other guests will be the tribulation saints. Now, uh, I, I wanted to identify them first so that we could see what God is doing, what Christ is doing within their lives. And we see that in verse 8, that, that in order for the bride to be suitable to marry Christ, she must first be made ready. Verse 8, it was given to her, that is the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen, linen is the righteous acts of the saints. At the end of verse 7, it says that marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. In order for the bride to be made ready for Christ, she must be clothed in fine linen. It must be clean and bright. This fine linen uh, 
John tells us at the end of verse 8, is the righteous acts of the saints. No bride would want to come to her wedding with a dirty dress or a mangled dress of some kind. And so, so as the church, as the bride of Christ, we are to be preparing ourselves, making ourselves ready with these righteous acts. Notice the delicate balance here in these verses between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. At the end of verse 7, it says that the bride makes herself ready. But then in verse 8, it says it was given to her to clothe herself. That is, God gave her the ability to be able to do these things. So again, as we often do in Scripture, we have this tension, this pull between God's sovereignty, that God sovereignly rules over all things and makes everything happen, but also our responsibility. God's sovereignty never means that we sit back and do nothing, but that we work. And and the way in which God accomplishes His purposes is through our responsibility, our working. We understand this when when it comes to gardening. Right? No, no one of us can force that plan to come up out of the ground, even if we pulled on its stalk. We wouldn't be able to do it. But we understand that there are principles involved in gardening so that when we cultivate the ground, when we remove the weeds, when we make sure it has adequate water and sunshine, then, then it will grow. But who is it that causes the growth? It's God. Okay? And the same thing is true here. When it comes to us having a responsibility to clothe ourselves in white linen. Ultimately, we can't make it happen. But we do have responsibilities to cultivate that beauty, that glory that God is expecting to have for His Son's bride. Verse 9, we have the wedding and the reception. The wedding and the reception, verse 9. Then He said to me, that is the angel who's speaking to John, write, okay, write this down as He said in other places, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's not a whole lot of talk here or anywhere else in Scripture about the actual wedding ceremony. We do know know that it will take place following the destruction of Babylon in heaven and prior to the tribulation. So we know the timing of the wedding. Notice verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. That is, it has taken place before the events of chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, when He comes back to the earth, literally when He touches down on the earth and, and destroys those who oppose Him. Before that happens, the marriage and the marriage supper will occur. And... um So following a wedding, both in the ancient Near East and in our day and in the future, apparently, there will be a reception. Following the wedding, there is a reception. And in the ancient Near East, the marriage celebration was much longer than our wedding receptions. So so when, when they would celebrate a wedding, they wouldn't just go to have a meal together. They would spend a lot of time together with both sides of the family. First, what would happen is the, the, they, the party, or I guess you could say all who are invited to the, the wedding, would go to the groom's house and celebrate there for several days, sometimes over a week. Following that celebration, they would go to the bride's house and, uh, and celebrate at the bride's house. And then following that, 
then the bride and the groom would actually be taken. Uh, they would uh, start their family and and um, and settle down wherever they were going to settle down. And this is exactly what takes place here at the marriage of Christ and His church. That following the wedding in heaven, He's going to take His bride to His hometown, which is heaven. And He's going to celebrate with all the hosts of heaven, all the people uh, who have been able to be invited to this wedding reception. That is, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. They're able to share in the joy that it that comes along with a wedding ceremony. But following that time, there's going to be another celebration. It's not going to be in earth. It's going to be in the bride's home, so to speak. And where does the bride come from? She comes from the earth. And so Christ is going to come down and He's going to prepare the earth. Okay, He's going to bring... We're going to see next week He's going to come on a white horse and He's going to destroy the earth. And then for 75 days after that, the earth is going to be cleaned up for a time where at the beginning of the millennial kingdom with Christ reigning with His bride, He will celebrate uh, he will celebrate together with his church this great wedding that they had uh, that they had uh, take place in heaven. John is told here in verse nine that he is to write these things down. And I think the reason he is supposed to write them down is because this is supposed to be a specific encouragement to the church. John being a part of the church to know that, that we are being prepared, that God is preparing for us, that it was given to us to make ourselves ready, and that we have a responsibility to make ourselves ready, that we are, are clothing ourselves with white, then this should be an encouragement to us. And it should also be an encouragement to those who will be invited to this, the tribulation saints, namely. In verse 10, we have a... a a verse that, that doesn't necessarily go along with the whole talk of, of wedding and reception and so on. It actually has something to do more with who we ought to worship. So when I started, I said that, that we are to give praise to God for who He is, what He's done, and His judgments. And here, the angel tells John, don't worship me. I am just a created being just like you. Verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. John falls at the feet of the angel. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, it's hard to blame John here because of his overflowing joy. I, I kind of picture it um, like he, he just can't stop being joyful, and so the, the natural thing for him to do is just worship the angel. Imagine that you owned $10,000 to the bank, and you had been receiving calls week after week after week, and, and you're becoming overwhelmed with the burden to pay off this debt of $10,000. And one day you got a letter in the mail that told you to come to the bank at your earliest convenience. And they wanted to talk about your debt. And when you arrived, the bank manager took you into his office and said, I just got word from our corporate office that they want to, they, they want to, uh, they want to take care of your $10,000 debt. They want to forgive it. It's been, it's been taken care of. What do you think your spontaneous response would be to that bank teller? When you get down and say, thank you, kiss him, maybe. That would be appropriate in our, our day. But, but you, you kiss the messenger. 
Okay, as opposed to we tend to often shoot the messenger when they bring bad news. So, so we, we treat the messenger as if they're the ones who sent it. And here's what's happening to John. He gets this great news, this great vision through the angel. And the angel says, write it down. And he says, thank you. I worship you. And he says, hold on a second. I'm not the one to be worshipped. What we learn from this verse is that no created being should ever be worshipped. We are simply messengers. Even the highest of the created beings, like angels, are not to be worshipped. And the reason that John must worship God, notice that towards the end of the verse, it says, worship God. That is, worship God, not me. Why? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, I'm just a conduit of God's prophecy, of the prophecy that comes through Jesus Christ, His testimony. That's the real uh, object of worship. He is the real object of the worship, not the messenger. And it's true, the angel is glorious, but he is not to be worshipped. So, what do people do to prepare themselves for a marriage? What do they do to prepare themselves for a wedding ceremony? And certainly there are people who don't really care a whole lot and maybe uh, do nothing to improve their appearance or their character, uh, maybe even get worse between the time that they find out that they're going to be married and the time that they're married. But in general, people look forward to weddings. People who are involved, the bride or the groom, as the future bride they or the future groom, they involve a lot of they're involved in a lot of preparation right i mean they get their finances in order they get in shape they the grooms make sure that they have a good job to provide for their future bride and leading up to the wedding the bride wants to look her best so she spends a significant amount of money on the dress that will enhance her beauty she she even uh has her fingernails and toenails all taken care of and Expensive hairdo that she wouldn't otherwise have done. And she dresses in beautiful white in order to enhance her beauty. Do you realize that that as a believer in Jesus Christ in this age, you are to be preparing yourself for the wedding to the groom, Jesus Christ. That you are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you are betrothed. You are already in the, the, the engaged to Jesus Christ to be married to Him as His bride. What are you doing, verse 7, to make yourself ready? Or do you even care? Christ is also preparing Himself as well. He's preparing a place for us to live with Him. And you realize that as part of Christ's Church, you are one of God's, one of Christ's greatest treasures. He anticipates his marriage to you as his church. You are more of a treasure to Christ than the angels. They will simply be watching when it's time for the wedding. They will not get nearly as much attention as you do because Christ is engaged to be married to you. He died for you, he did not die for angels. He gave up himself. And all the joys and, and the glory of being in heaven and being unopposed, really, so that he could have a relationship with you eternally. You are more of a treasure than the guests who will be there at that wedding and ceremony and, and reception. 
You are more of a treasure to Christ than the Old Testament saints. Do you recognize Christ's love for you? Do you love Him at all in return? This passage should give us great joy and hope and encouragement to do what is right, to get ready for that wedding ceremony. But this passage also serves as a contrast to the judgment of Babylon that we saw in chapter 17 and 18. The friends of Babylon, remember, they stood back at a distance as they saw Babylon, the world system being destroyed, and they stood back and what did they say? Not hallelujah, not praise be to Babylon. They said, whoa, 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 oh great city. You had, had, had lifted yourself to the highest of heights on this earth and now you're being destroyed in one hour. How much sorrow there is. So, in contrast to that picture, we attach ourselves to the things of this world and, and at the end times, we will be sorrowful. If we attach, our, attach ourselves to Jesus Christ, we will be singing great praise with all of heaven. And instead of drinking the cup of God's wrath, we will be drinking at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the cup of God's blessing. And we will receive His favor throughout all of the millennium and eternity. God deserves to be praised. We don't have to wait till then to praise Him for these great things that He is doing. We praise Him now for His judgments, for His righteousness, that He reigns, that He has prepared and is preparing His bride. And so, as we anticipate a wedding, we should also anticipate this wedding between Christ and His church and pray for its soon arrival. We know that it will happen, that that Christ will destroy the forces of this world with the bride at His side when He comes through the battle of Armageddon. That is guaranteed. It's in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. But by an invitation, I think John is to write this down. Why? So that we can have this great joy even now. That we should be praising God now and Jesus Christ for this relationship that we can have with Him. Are you praising God? Are you singing out? Okay, don't have to necessarily use the word hallelujah, but are you praise, praising God, giving praise, giving glory to God for who He is, for what He does? And if you do not regularly overflow with praise to God, and I don't just mean whenever you're in church with the words of your mouth, because sometimes we can do it with the words of our mouth without being filled with joy for who God is. But if you are not regularly, daily giving praise to God for His works, then I would say you are clearly not reflecting on God and His works. Listen to Psalm 145, 5-13, a passage that we're memorizing as a church. And notice how when we reflect on God's work, we praise Him spontaneously. Verse 5 reads, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. 
Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and Your dominion endures throughout all generations. If you're not meditating on God's work and God's character, then don't be surprised that you're not praising Him for His work and His character. You need to reflect regularly on Him and what He has done, not just in your life, but in the life of believers in the Scriptures. That's what the Scriptures are there for. To remind us of God's goodness throughout the ages so that we can see that God is not just good to those people back then. He's good to sinners who have been saved by grace even now, like me. And the natural response should be when we reflect on God to give Him praise. So let's seek to reflect on God more this week and on His works. And, and, uh, and when we do, we won't be able to help but to give praise to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this future marriage between Christ and His church. We look forward to be a, a part, being a part of that marriage throughout the kingdom and throughout eternity. And we thank You that even the marriages that we experience here on this earth are just a reflection of that. Help give us the picture of what it will be like to have a, a unified relationship with Jesus Christ. And certainly we do have a union with Christ even now through our salvation, unlike any in, in human history, uh, at least us as the church do. And but But that union will be even greater because the marriage relationship will be final and we'll be able to enjoy His presence, His personal presence forevermore. And we pray that that marriage would come quickly and we know that before that there has to be many things to happen. First being the rapture of the church of Christ's bride to heaven so that He can make the final preparations and destroy the things of this world and then, uh, and then the marriage supper, marriage and the marriage supper will take place. We pray that that would take place quickly. But in the meantime, help us not to be discouraged or to give up because this world is is too difficult, or or because we're struggling so much. But to only uh, use our struggles as a means to draw closer to our Savior and to be to be preparing ourselves so that on that day we will be clothed and, and beautiful and bright and a pure virgin that Christ deserves. And we know that, that ultimate glorification, that purity cannot happen apart from Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. And so we praise You for His great work on our behalf. And we pray that the result of a, a continual recognition of His grace that way would result in uh, righteous acts from us the saints. Give us the strength and the glory or the, the desire to, to magnify Your glory through our righteousness, we pray. May we give all the credit to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.